You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features interviews with the faculty, members, and staff who are a part of Ali at UNT's community of lifelong learners. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking with Dr. Becky Knight. Dr. Knight is a professor of gerontology in UNT's Health Services Administration Program, housed in the Department of Rehabilitation and Health Services, where she shares her expertise with undergraduate and graduate students, shaping the healthcare administrators of tomorrow to have ethical and moral acuity as they enter into the increasingly complicated world of healthcare. Dr. Knight holds a bachelor's in business administration degree in management and marketing from Baylor University and a master's degree in long-term care and senior housing administration, as well as a doctorate degree in gerontology from UNT. An expert in older adult health care issues, policies, and practices, Dr. Knight is also on several boards for the Gerontological Society of America. She was in healthcare administration for over 30 years before retiring to go back to graduate school. And I say retiring in quotes because it doesn't sound like Dr. Knight has been very retired at all. She has worked in all manners of facilities, including but not limited to long-term care, hospitals, physician-owned facilities, and even owned her own rehabilitation medical facility for 17 years. Dr. Knight's research interests include public health policy and program structure, wellness and safety, healthcare administration practice needs assessment, pedagogy, and andragogy, which involves the method and practice of teaching, particularly of adult learners, which fits right in with the membership here at OLLI. Welcome, Dr. Knight. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Let's start off by explaining what qualifies a person to be a certified professional gerontologist. Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it very much. A certified professional gerontologist is one who is credentialed either through the credentialing exams or through continuing education units, through journal articles published, and reassessment every two years of our work. I currently am a certified professional gerontologist by the work I have done in the field. What does it mean that you retired to go to graduate school? Well, in healthcare, I started when I was 21. I was a bright young scholar out of Baylor University, and back then they did not have health administration degrees. So you got a degree in management, and then you went into the healthcare field. And at age 21, I started in gynecological oncology, and that really mm. opened my eyes to healthcare and what it could be and what it should be. I then was in healthcare for almost 30 years, 29 and a half, and decided I would like to not be working so much, 24 hours a day in healthcare, in long term care, and owning your own practice. 
So I sold my practice in 2007. It was a physical therapy practice, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and decided to go back to school and get a master's degree and stayed and got a Ph.D. And really realized that I love to learn and I love to go to school and I love to take exams. So if you love to read and take exams, you too can get a Ph.D. (laughs) Um, But it, it comes easy for me with all of the experiences that I've had. Teaching comes very easy for me because it's just having a conversation based on what's happened in the past and what's hopefully going to happen in the future about healthcare. Terrific. Well, it does seem like you've certainly put all of that education to very good use for the rest of us. Thank you very much. Now, I was doing a little research on aging because I understand baby boomers are getting older. There's a lot of older population. And I found it very interesting that according to the National Institute of Health, the world's population of people aged 65 and older is increasing at an absolutely unprecedented rate. I believe they say that by 2050, one in six people in the world will be over age 65, as opposed to one in 11, as it is now in 2019. So I would imagine with this increase in the older population, there has to be a lot of money involved. There has to be a big business in it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely right. And if you have watched television any time recently, you will notice the increasing amount of ads for medical things, medical services, medical products, medical caregiving, because what we are calling that is the commodification of aging. What used to be 50 years ago, family care or companion care or caregiving is now a service. You can now have all of your family needs taken care of by strangers because that's the way our society is changing. The family does not live in intergenerational housing as much as it used to. Grandparents taking care of grandchildren adult children taking care of parents and grandparents. We are what's called a networking, smaller, nuclear society. We're not wide with our relationships. We are narrow with our relationships, and we're also in different towns. So this commodification of aging comes about by us paying others to do what families used to do. It becomes we now have fragmented services because there's so many ways to buy and sell your health care. You can sell your health care now to the highest bidder based on what you want brought into your home, or you can purchase health care caregiving through others to bring care to someone you love that you don't have time to take care of. This topic is so important. It's important to me at my age, and it's important to me as I look to my parent to see what is involved in that. So we're talking about the big business of growing old and taking care of those who are older. Could you speak about that? Yes, what what we call it is the commodification of aging. What that means is buying and selling of services that 50 years ago the family did. The family took care of intergenerational relationship caregiving. There was there was homes that most generations lived together either in the same home or on the same property within the same mile. That's not the case anymore. We have become more nuclearized, as in nuclear families, 
based on where the job is, not where the family is. So we're spread apart. So the children have moved away from their aging parents. Correct. Okay. So that leaves them with little help on the day-to-day practices of caregiving, transportation, environmental health and safety, looking at the home, is it safe, taking care of prescription management. Polypharmacy is a big thing that has come out of this. As we age, we need, we need watching, care just for the small things. And so now we are paying others to take care of that for us for many reasons. We also have created this mass industry of caregiving, health care, fragmenting of services because we're, we're trying to buy and sell to the highest bidder what we need, not necessarily getting the right person, but getting the right price. Mm. So that's where we have conflict sometimes in our caregiving, in our taking care of our older populations. It's based on a person who's paid to, to answer our insurance questions based on what insurance will pay, not necessarily what is the best for our loved ones. So I would imagine that leaves the door open to some unscrupulous practices. Absolutely. There's a lot of scams now saying Medicare will pay, insurance will pay, use our services, and we will get your reimbursement. No deductible needed. All of these things goes back to the question you ask, how do we keep our older loved ones safe from these unscrupulous practices? What I tell people is be smart and use your assistance. Use your family networks. Use your friend networks. There's a lot to be said about the saying of good things come in packages. It pays. It, it's helpful to work in pairs. All of that is smart when you're making decisions about health care for either yourself or your loved ones. So can you give some examples of in what way people might be duped into thinking they were getting good care for a parent or for themselves and it didn't work out that way. They were perhaps involved with someone who was unscrupulous. Do you, what should they look out for? Absolutely. Many practices are family-based or husband and wife-based uh, services that are not necessarily certified. So if you've got a home health care company coming into your loved one's home to care and you're paying them for specific services, if your loved one is not as cognitive as they have been in the past, who is going to say whether that caregiving was done? Who's watching over whether that medication was actually given or that medication was taken and sold on the black market? Who's to be wow. said that that bath was actually given or it was just neglected? If you're 100 to 500,000 miles away, it's very hard for you to protect your loved one. But that's where technology comes in. Cameras come in. You can have others in the neighborhood check in. You can get a certified service, making sure that they are certified with the Better Business Bureau. You can look at reviews. Look at reviews on that company to make sure that those people that you're bringing into your homes are are certified. So ask friends, look at Better Business Bureau, check out the Internet, and perhaps have a camera set up so you see what's going on. That's to us has been the best way to watch over these companies. And they come and go for that reason. And I would think if someone realizes that you are 
keeping track of this, even from afar, Mm -hmm. then they're going to be perhaps much more diligent, as we all are if we know we're being supervised, Mm -hmm. to make sure that we dot the I's and cross the T's. And that's better for you and better for your loved one if that you're responsible for. Absolutely so, right. That goes back into the what we're talking about the healthcare situation is getting very litigated. So our loved ones and ourselves are being pressed for more lab work, more research done, more second and third opinions, more visits to physical therapy, and that's not always the best thing that we need. That has to do with money. Right. Now, as you work with your undergraduate and graduate students, I know that you focus quite a bit on helping them become the moral and ethical leaders in that business that of tomorrow that they can be. How do you do that? What do you focus on with them? What do you stress? That's where something that we call the uh, ICF model comes in, and that's the International Classification of Functioning, Disability, and Health Model. It's a good model that the World Health Organization and also the CDC.gov is using. What that means is it's just looking at a condition based on other things besides just the health. What I'm teaching our students is to say, if you have a health condition, you can't just look at the ICD-10 code and say, okay, this person needs physical therapy and needs a, a wheelchair from Medicare. It's not as wise to walk them out the door and say, you're good. You have the health, you have the wheelchair, and you have it paid off. Looking at the entire person is the way that we are beginning to look at health care. Look at their activities. Is this wheelchair able to be used at their house? The environment that they live in, is it capable for this wheelchair? The transportation, is there barriers with this wheelchair that we can help get them extra services? Is it going to cause them social engagement? Is there places that that they want to go but can't get to because now they're wheelchair bound? Is there other services that we could help them provide? Looking at someone less than a diagnosis and looking at them more as a holistic person gives us a better look at healthcare. When we are administrators, we need to stop looking at the bottom line, we need to stop looking at the codes, and we need to look at them as a person because the needs are all around physical, emotional, psychological, social. And that's where that ethical side comes in. If you're just looking to make money, great. Put as many ICD-9 diagnosis codes on there, and you'll get paid. Right. But if you're looking at helping a patient in true life, then you will look at them and say, you know what? Before you leave, I'd like you to talk to our social worker. She has several brochures on other services that you can receive because it looks like you may need help with transportation now. It looks like you may need help on a new fence for, or a new walkway for your wheelchair. You might want to contact these people. They transfer vans over for wheelchair access. This is looking at a patient in an entirely different way because used to we separated it out. Okay, that doctor takes care of that need. That doctor takes care of that need. That doctor takes care of that need. But no one looks at the person as a whole. 
Well, you know, you bring up so much in my mind Mm -hmm. uh, what you just mentioned about the medication. And in fact, you know, splitting it up between different doctors, some medications interact with other medications. And I find that some older people are not very forthcoming when they're in an appointment with mm-hmm. a doctor and they're talking, they, they maybe don't think about it mm-hmm. or bring up issues that are pertinent for their quality of life in all of those areas that right. you mention. So it seems like the assessment is important, not just to get the wheelchair, as you say. How and this important, is just one very example. Yeah, just p- yeah. one example of how to look at it that way. Right. But and polypharmacy, like you said, is a huge problem. It is one of the top diagnosis for hospitalization. Wrong medicines. Too much, not enough. Wrong medication is high. I don't know if it's what the number one is right this minute, but it's in the top five. And sorting out those pills. Hospitals. Mm-hmm. That's that's a monumental task, especially for one who has a minimal cognitive impairment, let right. alone Alzheimer's or dementia. That's a lot to do. Another thing that I thought of as you were talking about the different areas is the socialization aspect of it. I had been to a conference talking about mental acuity and the mind and what happens as we age, and they mentioned the effect that loneliness has on Mm well-being as you age. That's one of the social determinants of health, which just means social determinants, meaning it determines your health on the social side. And that's one of the areas that I'm really working on right now is housing, how your housing determines your social determinants of health and how your housing directly affects your health. Because if you think about it, when you're looking at someone, you're looking at the physical, again, going back to this, when you're looking at the physical, that's great. But when you're also looking at the activities, you're looking at the community participation, community life. You think, well, that's, that's not important. Absolutely it is. It is a part of our being, how we are created. Our social side is directly connected to our physical side. And if we are isolated, if we are isolated by society, which is, happens all the time, that's called socio-emotional selectivity theory. We are separated social-wise because we're not needed anymore as we age, you're not, you're not providing for, for the society, well, then we're going to disengage with you. At the football game, you can't get up those stairs. Well, we're going to put you over here in the corner in your wheelchair because you're really not needed to be in the crowd. Wow. How it's, sad. It's, it's happening. And I can see it would have an effect on anyone Absolutely. at any age. But especially as you're getting older, because it must be a tremendous burden for people when they realize they're not able to do what they were able to do before. Yes, they are forgetting. And and at the beginning of that process, you're aware that you're Absolutely forgetting. You are. That has to be a very frightening thing to go through. So what do we do? We isolate ourselves because we are embarrassed. We're humiliated that we can't provide the same stimulation and conversation that we could 20 years ago or 30 years ago. So now we've got self-isolation and we've got social isolation, which causes us to lose our connections with family, friends, and the outside world. We begin to implode ourselves while society is saying, well, that's just what happens when you age. And we're having more and more and more 
of our population going through what you're describing. So housing, back to housing, has that issue. If our housing is separated, whether we're by ourselves in our own home or whether we're in an institutionalized setting or even a public housing setting, a public housing setting, if we are not Contrib- feel like we're contributing, if we don't feel like we can move around in society, then we isolate ourselves in our own home, in our own apartment, which continues to the downfall of, of isolation. You had a terrific topic in one of the classes that you taught at Ollie, mm-hmm. senior adult housing opportunities your grandmother never had, mm-hmm. which sounded wonderfully <laughs> promising. So in what ways are they different, and do they address these things that we've just been talking about? It's really interesting how medical care, like again, we were talking about this commodification of aging, the post-industrial capital means all the businesses out there are saying, you know what, we want those medical dollars. So how can we get to those who are isolated? How can we get to those who are homebound? Well, we're going to create our mobile health care to come to you. So the last 20 years, health care has become mobile through telehealth, through services, through action sites that are created and and members are sent out to homes, you can now be in your own home and have everything you need up to surgery. Wow. You can have medical physicians come in. It's called private medical physicians. They are on call and on retainer for you. I would imagine you have to be fairly wealthy to be able to afford that. Well, but some are doing that through telehealth. Blue Cross Blue Shield now has telehealth. You can be talking to a doctor or nurse 24 hours a day. On your computer. Without leaving your home or through your phone if you have a smartphone. You can now have blood drawn done to your, brought to your house. You can have x-rays brought to your house. You can have any manner of things up to and including hospice. So your continuation of life can be done right in your own home. Does that help the loneliness? Absolutely. Does it lower the health care costs? Absolutely, because you're not paying for hospital stays for minor things that could be prevented at home. So can you also address that isolation issue through your computer and the Internet? Mm-hmm. That's where a lot of things are coming to fruition in programs are now realizing we do not have to only provide for those who can be transported to the senior center. We can provide that through phone and through Internet as well. There are programs across the nation that now have daily calls where you can volunteer to make five calls a day to others who are isolated. And that has shown to increase their social engagement very, very much. Wonderful. Simple things. Yeah, sounds like it has a lot of potential. Mm -hmm. For those of us who care for an older parent, Mm -hmm. I have a question. Okay. As they live longer, you have more adults taking care of their parent, and the roles get switched. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, you're parenting your parent. What's the best way for the adult child to become the parent without damaging their parent's confidence and self-esteem? The key words that I teach that I think are important are purpose, and respect. Purpose meaning all of us want to have a purpose. 
I did a, a survey, a very small survey, a few years back in a Good Samaritan Society here in Denton, Texas, and I did it in three levels of care. In the independent living side, their purpose that they told me through their surveys was, our purpose is to care for those who are homebound here. So we do the shopping, we do the transportation, we do the, the groceries, getting them to Walmart, etc., because they cannot. The next level of care is assisted living. Those are homebound, but still cognitive, just have physical disabilities. You know what their answers were? No. Our purpose is we can't go anymore, but we can still care for those here in the facility. So we use our wheelchairs and our walkers to go visit those on the halls and those down in the skilled nursing facility that are bedridden. So we can't drive, we can't get out, but we, our purpose is here. Do you know what the skilled nursing facility residents told me? What's that? Their purpose is not the driving. Their purpose is not the walking up and down the halls with others. Remember, these were bedridden residents that I had as a separate section. Their purpose, they said, was to write cards or dictate cards to the nurses and caregivers and pray. They still needed a purpose, even though they were homebound, wheelchair-bound, bedridden, and close to passing away. Everybody needs a purpose. So when you're talking about talking to your older adult loved ones, make sure they have a purpose, whether it's choosing their clothing, whether it's choosing their meals, whether it's deciding what to watch on TV. They need to still have their purpose and their reason for being there. Mom, I need you to do this. This is important for you to help me with. Is a very important statement to say to an older adult to allow them to have that purpose. And then respect goes without saying with those of us here in Texas. We respect our elders, but also respecting where they are, finding them where they are. If they are in an, a non-cognitive state, then go in that state with them. This is a new concept. Fifty years ago, we would stand there as healthcare providers and argue with someone who has Alzheimer's because we needed to get them into the real world. It was our goal as healthcare providers. We have now switched around and realized that is mentally impossible for many reasons. When you're talking to an older loved one, whatever state they may be, respect where they are. If they are in a state of dementia, go where they are. If they are reliving their childhood, relive it with them. If they're in a frightful state because of an unknown fear or an unwarranted fear, to them their perception is reality. Go where they are and give them the respect that they need to be with them because otherwise you are hurting them worse by trying to drag them into reality. What helpful advice, purpose and respect, something we all need. I know though sometimes if people are taking care of very young children mm -hmm. or very old people, the tendency might be just to do it all yourself because it's easier. Just take care of everything. And that's a wonderful, wonderful idea to keep in mind. Those two parameters, yeah. purpose and respect, which we all need. So if you're not able to take care of your aging parent, is there a 
way that you can determine when you go to visit different facilities if they're the right ones. Is there a rating agency? Is Are there things in particular you should look for on a visit? What would you say to someone who was going to find some place for their parent to live? In a nutshell, because that's a very long conversation. <laughs> Is that another podcast? That's another whole <laughs> podcast, but in two or three sentences to make it short. If we're looking at an independent living facility, meaning that your loved one is not needing medical care, but just needs to wants to be on a property such as an independent living or that type of thing, I would go and look at space, look at lighting, look at sound, look at those types of things, because that's what someone who just needs a new place to live needs. If you're looking at an assisted living, which is the next level, that means they are getting some medical care, but they are still ambulatory. They are still able to take care of themselves, such as brushing their teeth, toileting, those types of things. They just need help with the IADLs, like driving and other things. Then I would begin to be more careful. I would start looking at the nurse ratio. How many nurses are there during the day? How many hours are they there? How much is the caregiving one-to-one? Is it one-to-three? Is it one-to-five? How many assistants are there? And what are their qualifications? Again, licensure is the key on this situation because you have to ask those hard questions of what license do you have? And then the, the final area is skilled nursing, and that's where... We have to be extremely careful. Skilled nursing facilities, nursing homes in general, are the second rated, highest regulated area in the United States. Wow. Because of so much fraud, because of so much verbal and emotional and physical abuse that happens. So Medicare.gov, go to Medicare.gov and then type in Nursing Home Compare. And that will give you the website that you can actually type in any nursing facility across the nation that takes Medicare. And you can look at their record. If they do not take Medicare, they will not be on that. If they do not take Medicare, I would find an alternative way to check them out or I would not go to that facility because they're not regulated by the federal government that I know of. Now, Medicare is the main federal regulation. And when you type in that nursing home compare, you'll get a a link to a vast spreadsheet. It's miles and miles long. Type in the zip codes of where you want to look for nursing homes. It will give you not only the address, the information, but it'll give you how many beds. It'll give you quality indicators. How many bed sores do those patients have? It'll give you nursing ratio. How many minutes did nurses spend with each loved one there? It'll give you physical safety Do all the red plugs work? How many fire extinguishers are there? How many times has the emergency backup system been checked this year? And all of that is done through the surveys that are given, surprise surveys that are given every year in Medicare qualified nursing homes. Well, that is a lot of information. Very, very helpful information. And I suppose the pricing varies quite a bit too. Do we have good housing here in this area? 
in the North Texas area, we have excellent housing because we have so much hospitalization. This is what's called an MD, a medical destination. Dallas-Fort Worth-Denton is declared a medical destination in the United States. I did not know that. And that is because we have certain number of hospitals, certain number of specialties, such as heart hospitals and teaching hospitals and children's hospitals. We also have uh, great weather. So that brings in the snowbirds from all over the United States. We have many, many people that in their last 20 to 30 years of life will transfer down to Florida, California, and Texas, the three states for the older populations. So where do you think the builders are going to go? They're going to come to California, Texas, and Florida because that's where the older population wants to retire. We have very good housing. My recommendation is a CCRC. And what is that, you say? Yes. It's a continuing care retirement community. Why do I say that? Because that means that to be designated as a continuing care retirement community, that means you have at least three levels of care. Independent living housing, assisted living housing, and skilled nursing on your property. And why is that important? Because your monies are kept all at one place. If you move to, uh, say, you move your loved one to an assisted living that is not part of a CCRC, once they surpass that level of care and need better care, you are having to move them out, pay that fee, find a skilled nursing, pay that fee. You are losing money as you're transferring your loved one in and out of different facilities. The other problem is if there's a long hospitalization, you lose your bed. If your loved one is in an assisted living and they're gone more than X number of days, depending on that facility, they shut down your bed and say, we're sorry. You either pay full price for this and full price for the hospital or you shut down your bed. So you're moving your loved one in and out, in and out of rehab, assisted livings, hospital, et cetera, et cetera. A CCRC, Continuous Care Retirement Community, brings rehab to you. Also, you can move from skilled nursing to assisted living, or you can move back to independent living. If you have a fall, go to the hospital, go to rehab, six weeks, eight weeks, go back to your apartment. So you have more choices on a CCRC facility to save money as you move through different levels of health. What you're saying is so important to so many of us. Mm -hmm. I might even venture a guess to say, all of us, because we're also all getting older. And if you aren't caring for somebody right now, just wait a few minutes. Hold on to your hat. Because you will be. It's coming down the pike, and you need to know what to do. It's a whole new situation. I've asked a variety of questions. What types of questions are you normally asked? What are the most frequently asked questions that people ask you? I would say the main questions that people ask me about, number one, is housing. How do I find good housing? And like I mentioned before, for skilled nursing, I would go to Medicare.gov. Follow your leads there. Also, you know people that are already in housing. I would go directly to them and ask them what they like, what they don't like. Because housing, again, as we went back to the environment, if you are in a housing situation or putting someone in a housing situation, you are, A, moving them out of their 
place that they have loved. You're moving them out of their social networks and you're transferring them into a place where they have to make new ones. And at 70 and 80 and 90, that's a little hard. It can be very disorienting. Correct. So when you're picking housing, make sure you're looking at all the aspects of your loved one. Look at the physical aspect, but look at the social aspect. And I'm not talking about bingo. (laughs) I'm talking about look at what they love and make sure there are avenues to get him or her there to the places where they provide that, whether it's in that housing facility, a church nearby, the senior center. Make sure that you are not disrupting that loved one so much that it causes them to self-isolate. The second question, oh, and then also on that, how do I pay for it? Mm, People very ask important all the time, question. how do I pay for it? Very important question. It has to do with long-term care insurance, but it also has to do with your savings and making sure you are using what you have. Many health insurances will also pay for some type of caregiving. And if you can provide that at home, then your, your loved one doesn't need that isolated housing. Do it at home. Bring that care to their home, as we talked about before. Institutionalization should be for safety, for socialization, and for physical health. And if those three things can be taken care of in the home, keep your loved one in their home. Why is that? They're familiar with it. They have their social networks there, and they feel safer there. Paying for it, like I said, has a lot to do with that. If you, if there is long-term care, great. If not, then you may have to go to a second level, which is Medicare paid or Medicaid paid. The next thing people ask me about is hospitals. What hospitals do I use? What doctors do I use? Unfortunately, a lot of that is taken out of our hands right now. It has to do with what your little tiny insurance card says. So if your loved one has great insurance and it's, you know, that you are able to pick and choose, then I would definitely go with the best doctors you can find that are local because localization has a lot to do with it. If that loved one cannot get to those doctor's appointments or if you're causing a lot of frustration to get to someone who's far away, that doesn't really help. And then the third one is caregiving. My loved one just needs some care and I'm not able to watch over her all the time. How do I do that? There are many programs that even just will care for someone during the day. Did you know there are programs that you can drop off a loved one at a site and they are cared for during the day and activities and then they go home with you at night? That's a wonderful resource. So It's good just, to know about. Just daily caregiving. Now, our OLLI membership, as you know, is 55 and above. Mm-hmm. So we're all getting older every day, God willing. What should we expect as an expert in aging? What would you tell a person? What's normal? What's abnormal? What kind of things should we expect to see as we get older that we might want to be aware of? People do ask me that a lot, too. They say, I think my husband's going crazy. How do I know? And I say, (laughs) well, you hand them a fork and you say, what is this for? And if they start combing their hair with it, then you know that there's some problem. All kidding aside, you will know when someone is having some mental disabilities, some cognitive slipping, as we all do, but you will know that it's becoming an issue when things happening start happening such as getting lost. Places they've gone for years and years and years, all of a sudden they can't find it. That's a sign of that that part of the memory is being lost. If they put milk in the cabinet and they put the cereal in the refrigerator, 
you know, that's a sign of things are not functioning just right. All of us lose our keys. All of us forget where we're going. But if this becomes a repetitive act, that's typically a sign of maybe there is some cognitive disability happening. Is that a bad thing? No, it happens to many of us. But what I tell people is to begin to write that down, begin to track it, begin to see whether it's a physical situation. It could be a polypharmacy situation. There could be a medication gone wrong. There could be a low-grade fever that's causing that. So having your doctor check it out and writing down these things to follow the pattern is important. All of us, our, our brains are like huge filing cabinets. And when you're five, your filing cabinet is empty. So my granddaughter can remember things I can't remember. Where did I put that? She knows. But my filing cabinet has 58 years of stuff in it. And sometimes things get lost in the cabinet. What a cognitive disability means is there's rust on the bottom of the drawer. And so you've got these little places where things are falling out of the filing cabinet. You not only can't find them, but they're not there anymore due to disease. So just be aware of that. If things are not happening at all, there may be some disease happening. Hopefully with more of us getting older Mm -hmm. and older, and particularly older than 65, which seems to be what a lot of people determine the cutoff, unless you're AARP or whatever. But hopefully we can change some of these images of Mm -hmm. aging and some of this isolating that goes on in the society because there is safety in numbers. Oh, yes. We baby boomers (laughs) are already changing the face of ageism. I just went to a conference, the Gerontological Society of America, and one of the talks I did was on ageism and how to change the face of ageism in healthcare. We are actually putting trainings together on the right words to speak in healthcare. Don't call anyone elderly anymore. Call them older adult. Don't assume things. Be sure and ask the right questions. There's there's a whole litany of how we are changing the wording that we're teaching our healthcare providers to use because we baby boomers, we know that we're a force. That's right. And we also can help change that through communication with our younger adult children, with our grandchildren, giving them the right words to use is a big step in the right direction. Also financial, and like you said, political change, Mm -hmm. moving that to where older adults are allowed to have more say in the workplace instead of being set aside. We're also being utilized for our intellectual capital, making sure your jobs know that your intellectual capital is still for sale, even though you're over 65. You may be peaking. That's right. You may be at the top of your knowledge and your expertise. So Mm -hmm. it is a shame to be shuttled aside when you're peaking. Because of a chronological age. That's Right. right. You actually taught a course, I noticed, on images of aging in film and literature. Mm -hmm. Did you touch on those kinds of things in that class? I did. What have you discovered there in terms of images of aging? When I created this class, it's this is an undergrad class. It's an introduction to aging class for 18 and 19, 20-year-olds. I mean, who at 18, 19, and 20 cares about aging? They're going to live forever. Well, yeah. So when they come in, I do a pretest and I ask them what they think. And you would be well, you would not be surprised at the answers. 
But then each week I create theory and a lecture. We call them human statistic exercises around one theory. So like on the week that the boys like the most, it's called uh, disengagement theory. And that's where as society disengages with us, we disengage with society as we age because we are told that that is the right thing to do. Society doesn't need us because we're not providing. We're not putting into the FICA coffers. We're not putting into the Medicare coffers. We're taking out. And so the younger adults are not very happy with their paycheck being cut and being given to older adults. It makes them very angry. So I bring that up in this, in this particular week of disengagement theory. And I show them, who do you think paved the path for you ahead of time? Who do you think built these buildings? Who bought those roads? Who paid for that fire engine out there that's coming? These older adults that you are disengaging with have created that path for you to walk on. And you're going to do the same for the generations behind you. So I use the film to show them the consistency of how we've set up the system in America since 1930s of putting into Medicare and Medicaid and other things, putting into these savings accounts for Social Security, and then using that to provide for older adults. So we don't need to disengage from them. They are still providing for us in many ways. I also use the film Grand Torino to show uh, racism because there's race in there and how we need to make sure that we are inclusive of anyone, not only someone older, but someone of a different color or a different creed or different race. So using films is a great way to show how older adults are still us. They're just more wrinkly. (laughs) And then I I have another one, Calendar Girls, that I use for uh, other socio-emotional selectivity theory, which is talking about how social-wise we begin to pull away from others in social aspects because they're older. And it's, it's a similar theory. And women in aging, especially when we lose our looks, we are considered not as viable of a human being because of our outside Absolutely a challenge for women. Yes. I use a lot on that week about how we need not judge somebody from our looks. Because if you saw somebody, and I bring my mom in for that week sometimes, and I have her put on the sit on the front row, and I have her dress very casually, and I show her, I said, who is this person? Do you know who this is? And they say, well, she's older. Um, she's probably not rich. You know, she, she looks just like a normal, somebody's grandmother. And then I, I throw up her CV. And her dossier includes not one, but four college degrees. Wow. She has a bachelor's, two masters, and a PhD. She has served for the UNT legal system for many years, as well as the University of Texas A&M system. She's traveled to every uh, continent in the world. She's been around the world. She has been to many different countries. She speaks a couple of languages. What you see is not always what you get in an older person. And so bringing that into the classroom is very easy if you do it the right way. What a gift you give these young people. Because I find anyone, but particularly when they've lived for a longer period of time, if you sit and talk to a person, there is a hidden gem somewhere. Sometimes it's not so hidden, 
Sometimes it's easy to find. But as you say, a lot of times we might look at a person that is very, very much older and just put them in a category. That's right. And then when you start talking and realize the incredible things and experiences and history this person has to share, it's really a gift to give that insight to a younger person. What I would suggest the Ollie listeners do is volunteer that knowledge in constructive ways. Don't wait for the younger population to come to you. Volunteer. I could use you in my classrooms at UNT. We could use you at the RSVP. We could use you at First Baptist First Refuge for mission work. We could use you in the classrooms around the university area in all of the areas, the elementaries, the middle schools, the high schools. Just because you're 65 does not mean you are not needed in this North Texas area. That's terrific. Thank you so much. Dr. Knight, I could actually spend about four or five podcasts speaking with you. I know this one has gone a tad longer than they normally do, but it is such an important area. And as we said, becoming more and more important every single day as our population ages. So I thank you so much for some very critical, useful timely and interesting information thank you so much for speaking with me today and thank you for inviting me i hope we get to do it again my absolute pleasure this has been susan supak speaking at the osher lifelong learning institute at the university of north texas with dr becky knight thanks for listening If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ollie at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.